relation. So we have our last day in terms of our group meditations, focusing on shamatha without a sign. Uh, this will be again an unguided meditation with just this brief preamble. So I think you're quite familiar with the various phases of just initially just resting your awareness evenly in space, taking nothing as an object, being aware of the experience of being aware, heightening that experience and then relaxing, inverting your awareness upon the observer, the agent, releasing into space. Then the exercise, the kind of the final warm-up exercise we did yesterday, uh, up into space above you, to the right, to the left, down, back to the center, to the heart. And then finally, final word from Padmasambhava is simply, now, just bring your awareness to space and leave it there. That's it. And then he says, continue doing this until your mind is settled in its natural state. And we've been hanging out for seven weeks now. You know what that means. We've got at least a good conceptual understanding of that. And so um, as much of those preliminaries or kind of warm-up exercises from the very beginning, that whole sequence uh, that you would like to run through this morning, by all means do that. Uh, but then recognize that um, there is this final when you're really, this final phase, when you're really setting out, you've all, you're all, all warmed up, you're limber, you're warm, you're flexible, you're loose. Now run your marathon. Now just keep on running until you hit the finish line, right? Quite simple. And that's just resting your awareness in space. And as you know full well, and so I, don't even, I know I don't even need to say it, but I'll say it anyway. As you're resting your awareness in space, releasing into space, you're just gently sustaining that flow of awareness of Awareness, awareness of being aware. That's it. And then you just let, just let it happen without seeking to achieve anything, without hoping for anything, without desiring for anything. This is where the real finesse, the microcosm of contentment comes in. Right? The, the macrocosm is in your, while you're here, are you content with the food, your room, your clothing? and so forth, you're pretty much content with the situation here and what you're doing here, overall content, that would be a really good idea. That, but that's on the macro, right? Here in the micro is right there in the moment. Doing the practice correctly, which means doing so very little, you're doing about as much as that blueberry muffin dough is doing in the oven, right? But you're doing it well, doing so little. And then practicing correctly, knowing you're practicing correctly, and taking satisfaction and confidence in practicing correctly, and knowing that you are accomplishing shamatha. Again, I haven't really highlighted this little phrase in Tibetan, but it's very useful. And that it's very easy when doing this practice, since it does have a path and there is such a thing as achieving shamatha, we all know that, it's very easy to keep on, at least intermittently, wonder, how am I doing? How far have I gotten? When will I get there? Will I ever get there? Mm. How much good karma do I have? Mm. Etc. Mm. How many other people have done it? Etc. And kind of looking ahead, looking ahead, hoping, kind of fearing, aspiring, giving up, whatever. Uh, and the point here is just release all of that and take total satisfaction in resting in that sheer clarity, that sheer cognizance of awareness, open, resting in space, and having a sense that it's meaningful, 
having actually the sense that for the time being, it's the most meaningful thing you can do. Now, to try to persuade somebody else of that probably could be a very difficult thing to do. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If in your own heart you know this is not because of something I said or even Dujil Ningba or Padmasambhava or Benjamin or what you said, if you, from your own side, by your own value system, you have this sense based upon your own experience, your understanding, for the time being, this is the most meaningful thing I can do and entails doing almost nothing at all, but it's really meaningful. It's the most meaningful thing I can do right now. Then you're content. And that's one of the prerequisites for fully achieving shamatha. But right there, that's doing the practice. And that is, in the Tibetan, it's called shine dupa. You are accomplishing shamatha. By doing it correctly, knowing you're doing it correctly, taking satisfaction, contentment, and having confidence in doing it correctly, that's achieving shamatha. That's as good as it gets. That is, there's nothing more you need to do. If you start second-guessing and think, oh, I should be maybe, uh, maybe, maybe me, that just kind of pulls you backwards. But when you have confidence, this is it, then you are accomplishing shamatha. And if your motivation is as sound, as meaningful, benevolent, as close approximation to bodhicitta as it possibly can be, then I will say with total conviction, there's no grounds for regret, no matter what whether it takes you a hundred years, a hundred lifetimes, or a hundred minutes to achieve shamatha, no grounds for regret. If that's your motivation, and you're doing this practice, taught by Pinjanabhoche, taught by the Buddha himself, taught by Padmasambhava, with the, motiv- with the motivation of bodhicitta, really, what more meaningful than that? Right? So just it gives the, as the, the, the parallel, uh, when Padmasambhava, by way of Dujum Lingba in the Vajra Essence, is speaking about resting in Rikpa, so clearly, another whole dimension. But he said, just resting in Rikpa, this immeasurably transcends all other virtues. And, and he gives these gargantuan examples of giving away all the money and the, all the wealth of a galaxy, giving this to the poor, and doing this, and one, one more extravagant virtue after another, after another, after another. He said, no, more than all of those, all of those acts of doing, doing of the body, speech and mind, stage of generation, completion, meditating on this, meditating on that, and so forth. All of that from the conventional perspective. All of that from the perspective of being non-lucid. Right? All virtues, even meditating on emptiness from the perspective of being non-lucid, let alone stage stage of generation and completion, magnificent practices. But all of those done from the perspective of being non-lucid, from the perspective of your course mind, more than all of those, greater merit, greater value, greater meaning, greater transformative power and simply resting in rikpa and being lucid and doing nothing whatsoever. So doing nothing whatsoever being lucid is more valuable than doing an infinite amount of virtues from a non-lucid perspective. Wow. Let's practice. 24 minutes. Onasso. I just remember, remembered very vividly a comment that Gyaturamachi made close to 20 years ago. He had been teaching in the West since, I think, 1972, really devoted most of his adult life to helping us here in North America, here, that is, over in North America. And uh, so he'd had students who had been studying with him, practicing under his guidance for quite a few years by that time, 20 years or so. And 
found a number of them were kind of complaining, dissatisfied, dissatisfied with the kind of slowness of their progress in the practice, feeling they weren't really gaining the realizations and so forth. And he gave just a general comment. He said, the reason if you're dissatisfied with your practice, it's not so much that you lack faith in the Buddha or the Dhamma, your guru. Primary cause is you lack faith in yourself. It really struck me as being very profoundly true. Now, there are different modes of practice, of course. The developmental approach, where you're learning a lot of things that are kind of foreign imports into your system. For example, um, a lot of the lamrim doesn't just come naturally. The notion of there being 18 qualities of a fully endowed human life. Uh, we didn't just kind of know that intuitively. Or six realms of existence, or 12 links of dependent origination. Uh, or if we go into Vajrayana, stage regeneration, but well, that's a lot of foreign import. Uh, I think you know I, that's, there's no judgment in that, like putting it down in any way, but it's a lot of stuff we're getting from outside. And then mantras and mudras and visualizations of all kinds and so forth. And so to engage in such practices, then quite rightly, you need to have a lot of faith in them, which means you need to have a lot of faith in their source. So th there we are, because it's, it's really coming, something from, coming from outside. For these practices we're doing here, for these shamatha practices, you are already breathing, you're already having mental events, you already had awareness, and so you can really see the, the degree of foreign import, something coming from outside here is just marginal. And when you're just resting as we were there, just resting in awareness of awareness, you can say, okay, now, which part of this is Buddhist? Which part of this is a foreign import? And I kind of think it's like, wait a minute, this is totally an inside job. The teachings were there to help me do something that is entirely natural and entirely internal. Uh, and so I don't really need to have that much trust in Alan or his gurus or the Buddha or Padmasambhava. Or, I mean, that might help, probably would help. I mean, placebo effect, which is, you know, the power of your own faith and so forth, that's bound to help. But fundamentally, either there's a very profound capacity, potential, a power within to bring about extraordinary transformation, realization, and so forth, or not. If there is, then we're in really good shape. If we're not, we're totally out of luck. You know, we're total losers. We've been persuaded, you know, when we could be doing all kinds of productive things in the world, you know, we could be doing that instead of eight weeks of just sitting there going, you know, we could have got, you know, this is, this is 38 people here, 38 people times eight weeks, you know, that we could have gotten a lot done here. I mean, what couldn't we have done? These a lot of intelligent, highly educated people. Man, we really could have gotten something done. I don't know quite what, but certainly we could have, got, could have done something. Instead, we're just sitting there watching our thoughts, watching our breath, not watching anything at all, <laughs> you know, and hoping for the best. <laughs> well, there it is. Many of you now, it might even be all of you, have had really, no, I think all of you, you've had some really meaningful experiences. And you know where they're coming from. This is discovery. This isn't development. This is discovery. I mean, some development, but overwhelmingly. This practice above all, where you're just resting, resting in space, aware of the experience of being aware, that's pure discovery. So having faith there, having confidence, really powerful. That will carry you through.
Now, when Gyatso Rinpoche said this, of course, he was speaking as a Tibetan who was raised in Tibet, trained in Tibet, was in retreat in Tibet, trained under three of the emanations of Dujum Lingba, three out of five. Uh, and so he was surrounded as, as he was growing up. He, le- he, he left Tibet when he was like 35 or so, something like that. Like, see if I can count it. Yeah, something like 35 years old. So really, major part of his, all of his childhood youth and a good part of his adult life was spent in this traditional setting with 6,000 monasteries and, you know, such a contemplative space to be in. And so if you went to any village uh, and you asked, you, you know, asked the villagers, you know, the nomads, the farmers, the merchants, do you know any highly, highly realized being? Are there any living in this area? The chances, oh, sure, yeah. Oh, this yogi up there, he's been up there for 20 years, and the, the abbot of this monastery is a really fine tuku. And then once in a while, Gawakamapa comes here and teaches, or, you know, Sakyatisarimuchi comes and teaches here. We, we've seen them. Uh, and in fact, my uncle, my uncle is really quite, quite extraordinary. You, know? um, you just wouldn't have to look very far to find some really... And, and, and if you think I'm idealizing this, I'm not. If you ask, do you know any corruption? Do you know any really rotten llamas? Do you know any exploitation? So forth? Oh, sure, oh, sure, sure. That, yeah, there's no question. It wasn't utopia. But in the midst of that being a human realm, with people, monks, llamas, men, women, business people, government officials, screwing up because of mental afflictions, because they're like us, you know. In the midst of all of that, there were plenty of grounds. If you were just starting out practicing uh, in Tibet, you know, like 70, 80 years ago, and you're looking for grounds of confidence, like, could I, could I achieve anything? Well, quite reasonably, say, but, but why not? My cousin did, uh, and my uncle's best friend did, and, and that lama living in that cave over there, been up there for 20 years, and he wasn't a tuku. He was kind of like me, but he had really strong renunciation. You'd have a lot of, you know, by contact, you'd say, but we have a lot of people like me, you know? So, you know, why not? So, but unlike Tibet 80, 90 years ago, if you go back to Sydney, back to Berlin, back to, you know, wherever you're, Mexico City, California, and you ask, do you know any really highly realized yogis? <laughs> they say, what's a yogi? <laughs> what's highly realized? And what are you talking about? Have you escaped from someplace? <laughs> oh, you were in mental rehabilitation in this Phuket concentration camp. Yes, okay. I've heard about that. Uh, so not so much. Right? Not so much. So what we have in the West is old stories. Old stories. Great saints of the past. You know, St. Francis, Jesus himself, the great prophets of the Jewish Bible, and so forth. We have really great stories of the past. And then we have the miracles of modern science and the wonders of modern medicine, and so forth and so on. That's... That's what really catches our attention. You, too, could be an outstanding scientist. You, too, could be... Maybe you, too, could be a millionaire before you're 30, etc., etc. And so, if we're looking around, when we go home, because now we finished seven out of eight weeks, almost, when we go wherever going, and you're looking around in the environment, the people you, you engage with, and you're looking for inspiration, and who among you has achieved what I'm seeking to achieve myself, who's followed far along the path of the path I'm seeking to follow um, may, be, may be tough. You know, looking outside for confidence. Right? But it occurred to me just this morning that right here in this room we have three generations. Uh, I'm one of the oldest. I think a few people here just a couple of years older than I, but not a generation older. There's nobody here who's 85 or 90. So there's more or less my generation 
And then I look around, oh, yeah, kind of more, more or less Haggai's generation. He, he's actually older than he looks. Um, but he's, he's a generation lower. He's a generation younger. And then happily there's Camila. And she's generation younger. She doesn't look like it either. But uh, she, she could be, you know, she's another generation. So we actually have three generations here, right? Uh, here's my sense. So everything I think, I believe what I've just said is true. And now here's an interpretation or hypothesis. My sense is, and just kind of like how the, the globe is doing, and specifically for Buddhism, of course. I'm not going to try to speak about Taoism and so forth and so on. Uh, but Buddhism, I have you know, been kind of familiar with it for more than four decades. My sense is this, for us moderns, and I'm not, not referring to Westerners. You could be from Singapore, from, from Ulaanbaatar, you know, Bangkok, anywhere. Um, but people living in the modern world, but now specifically for this tradition, for this whole current, this Indo-Tibetan current that I'm familiar with, that I've been sharing with you for the last seven weeks, my sense is that we are the three generations. That's my sense. This is my, my intuition. We're the three generations. And that is, if we, as these three generations, because uh, I'm pretty much the first generation. I mean, there are few people like Bob Thurman, Jeffrey Hopkins, about 10 years older than I. They had access to these superb masters. And beyond that, it's just a sprinkling. Lama Anagarika Govinda, John Blofield, Alexander David Neal, they're just these tiny sprinklings, you know, and they're pretty much all dead tiny sprinklings of a generation above that, you know, but they're all gone, and they're a very small number. Um, so pretty much my generation was the first one that's really had sustained, uh, quite intimate, close guidance, contact, received blessing, empowerment, transmission, the whole thing, from these extraordinary lamas who are thoroughly trained in Tibet. We're the first generation that got it. We had the benefits and the challenges of that uh, back in the 70s so forth. And then there's the next generation. Uh, so, there. Uh, still, you've had, if you wanted to, you definitely can have access to a lot of these great masters. And even now, people have come in this generation. Yang Tanabuchi is still alive. His Holiness Dalai Lama is still very much alive, full of vigor, vitality, and so forth. Um, so my sense is this, that it's, it's up to these three generations. That if amongst us in these three generations, if there are some of us who really get our act together, total dedication, all in, and we just do whatever is needed to create the conducive environment, whether it's just local for ourselves, whether it's communal, like what we're trying to do in the heart of India, in Santa Barbara, Australia, in Scotland, in Mongolia, in Brazil, in Mexico, trying to create these conducive environment, environments, getting qualified teachers, creating a critical mass of Dharma students really devoted to following the path and not just practicing Dharma. They're all over the place, that's fine. But following a path, finding the path, proceeding along the path, if amongst these three generations, if we have people emerging from people just like us, who are not identified as tukus, no flower petals raining down on the ground when we're born, no rainbow lights, you know, uh, none of that stuff, just kind of like, you know, ordinary. Uh, but out of ordinary, manifest the extraordinary and actually achieve shamatha, move on to the path, into vipassana, into bodhicitta, and so forth and become a great being, a Mahasattva. If there are those among our three generations who do this, people will rise like Milarepa. Then the whole system, which got so crippled, so howitzered, so blasted in the 20th century, uh, will get a fresh breath. It'll get a, a breathe new life. We'll see something, whoa, it got, that, was, that was the most intense thing that happened to Buddhism in the last 2,500 years, the 20th century. And, but it didn't die. 
it didn't, it didn't kind of just fizzle away and go out with a quiet whimper. But actually, in the, in the early part of the 21st century, it got rebooted. And now they're telling stories about people of these three generations, you know, and displaying cities and so forth. If there are people among our three generations that do that, that rise really to spiritual greatness, then that'll give a whole second wind to put it on in our world. Uh, and if there's really nobody within these three generations that does that, we're just practicing Dharma and then dying and hoping for the best, making prayers for good, re- good future rebirth. Um, my sense is probably then it's not going to happen. Because by the time Camilla's generation, and I'm not trying to, no, no weight on Camilla, just you're in, in a generation, she's 18 or so. Um, so no, the whole world is not exactly, you know, rests on your shoulders <laughs> alone. But your mama will help, I'm sure. Uh, and you have two brothers, you know, you've got two very good co-brothers. Co- um, but if our generation doesn't, if these three generations don't do it, then four generations, all of these great lamas are going to be gone. You know. And so then all the stories I've been telling about, you know, from the recent past and the ancient past, they'll all be just stories. And they'll be all rather ancient. And it'll be very easy to say, oh, yeah. But you religious people have been doing that forever. You always exaggerate. You're always making up these fantasies to try to give people false hope and inspiring them with, with nonsense. And you've been doing it all along. That's what you're doing now. And yeah, show me the person. Show me anybody you know who's actually realized it. Show me. And you go, ah. Then I think probably then it's going to go out with a little quiet fizzle. Gradually taper off. It'll just be study, study, study. And then talking about people in the old days who gained realization. And then less study. And then crappy study. And then no study. And then bye-bye Buddha Dharma. That's my sense. Before we close, let's go for one more quote. I think this will be my last addition to these um, notes on the nine stages leading to shamatha, the actual achievement of shamatha. And as you might have guessed, I'm going to end with a quite an extraordinary quote from the Vajra Essence. So the question is posed. This is right at the end of the presentation on shamatha, just before going into Vipassana. And the question is posed. If all meditative experiences, the nyam, whether pleasant or rough, are far from being the path to omniscience and bring no such benefit... Why should we practice meditation? And then in this context, we know meditation is referring to shamatha, because this whole preceding discussion for like 20 or 30 pages is all about shamatha. So if just having a whole bunch of nyam, and you've all had nyam by now, and some of them are pleasant, and some of them are rough, but if they're just having a whole bunch of experiences, if that's not really proceeding along the path, then, and they don't bring that benefit, then why should we do this? Why do this? It's not homogeneously fun. And so why do this? And here comes the question. Here comes the response. The mind, which is like a cripple, and the breath, which is like a blind, wild horse, are subdued by tethering them to the stake of meditative experience and firmly maintained attention. So he's gone through quite elaborately the settling the mind in its natural state. But now he's going to have this, as I mentioned earlier, has this default mode. Here's one thing, and that is, in order to just kind of get your feet on the ground, to get traction again, you can go right back to mindfulness of breathing. Okay? I won't elaborate on that. Our time is short. So then he continues, once people have dull faculties, remember the sharp faculties, they get it immediately. They've got rikpa, medium faculties, oh, it takes them three weeks, 
And then there's all the rest of us. Okay. So, dull faculties incorporated, proletariat of the contemplatives. Once people of dull faculties have, rec have recognized the mind, well, I think you have. We're not speaking ultimately now, but if you're able to observe a thought, etc., etc., we've been through that. If I can see Lisa's face, I've seen her body. I don't need to see all of it. If I've seen her face, I've seen, my, seen her body. If I've seen a thought, I've seen my mind. Not all of it, but that counts. That's sufficient for saying, yes, I'm observing my mind. So once people of dull faculties have recognized the mind, they control it with the reins of mindfulness and introspection. Control, it means not just allowing it to slip off into laxity or excitation. So by controlling the mind, by mastering the mind, by subduing the mind, consequently, as a result of their meditative experiences and familiarization, they have the sense that all subtle and coarse thoughts have vanished. So, through familiarization, right? Getting that single-pointed mindfulness, manifest mindfulness, that's where you're really going to familiarization. You're, you're now on the marathon run. And over the course of time, coarse and subtle thoughts subside. All the snow in the snow globe settles down to the ground. Finally, they experience a state of unstructured consciousness devoid, on, devoid of anything on which to meditate. Right? So you know. Now you know exactly what that means. They've settled in the substrate consciousness. And they're devoid of anything on to meditate. All that's arising is substrate. Then when their awareness reaches the state of great non-meditation, when they're now, now in the state of profound not doing, pure being, their guru points this out so that they do not go astray. In other words, right there points this out, this great non-meditation. You are maybe so poised, so clear, so lucid, so transparent, so still, that you're ready to have now pointing out instructions to point your attention right through the substrate consciousness to Rigpa. And that's the great non-meditation. For this to occur, in order to get not only to shamatha, but then go, to go right into Rigpa, for this to occur, first you must undergo, first you undergo great struggles in seeking the path. Well, you've all had great struggles. I've been listening to you for seven weeks, on our one-on-ones especially. Great, a lot of, sometimes definitely struggle. Yeah. Some people more, some people less. In seeking the path, well, that's it. Shamatha is a way to come up to the on-ramp onto the path, and we're seeking that on-ramp by really trying to familiarize ourselves with, with shamatha. So first you undergo great struggles in seeking the path. You take the movement of thoughts as the path. And finally, when consciousness settles upon itself, this is identified as the path. This is the on-ramp, right? You've found it. Until unstructured path awareness or consciousness manifests, and rest in itself. Because of the, of the perturbations of your afflicted mind, you must gradually go through rough experiences like the ones discussed. So that was that two-page, two quite awesome account of signs of progress. This is necessary. So this is his response. Why should we practice when meditation? You just have all these, all these rough and pleasant yum. He said, well, this is necessary. Because of the perturbations of your afflicted mind, you must gradually go through rough experiences like the one, one discussed. And then he concludes, when you settle into a spaciousness in which there is no cogitation or referent of the attention, all phenomena become manifest for the power of awareness. 
and that's the power of pristine awareness, is unimpeded. So this is this smooth transition. You know. And that is, and you recall it from Natural Liberation, where he says, he's giving this very brief account of shamatha without a sign, and then he's saying, this may be sufficient. That which we're calling shamatha without a sign may be sufficient for breaking right on through to pristine awareness. So he's giving this very sleek, this very elegant, very simple approach. Settle your awareness into natural state, settle in the substrate, and then just don't stop. It's kind of like you're on a train and you're coming to the end of the end of the line of shamatha. You know, shamatha, you're coming to the village of shamatha. But you don't stop. And you just keep right on going. Don't hold, oh, shamatha. Don't hold on. Just keep on moving and break right on through to pristine awareness. So this is it. When you settle into a spaciousness in which there's no cogitation or referent of the attention, not even, aware, not even the substrate itself, you're breaking through, then all phenomena become manifest. Now all of your five senses, six senses, all of them become wide open. For the power of pristine awareness is unimpeded. Thoughts merge with their objects. And so now thoughts are allowed to freely arise again. Right? You've moved from shamatha into rigpa choksha resting in pristine awareness, that total spaciousness, unimpeded, unconstrained, unedited, wide open. Thoughts merge with their objects, disappearing as they become non-dual with those objects, and they dissolve. Since not a single one has an objective referent, they are not thoughts of sentient beings. In other words, your perspective is not that of a sentient being. These are thoughts arising as pure effulgences of pristine awareness. They have no owner, and they are not thoughts of a sentient being. Because you're not viewing them from the perspective of being a sentient being. You're viewing them from the perspective, of course, of rikpa. Since not a single one, of, single one has an objective referent, they are not thoughts of, a sentient, of sentient beings. Instead, mentation, you remember mentation, mentation is transformed into wisdom most specifically the wisdom of realizing emptiness. And its creative power, the creative power of mentation, is transformed into primordial consciousness. And stability is achieved there. So how about that? Achieving shamatha in primordial consciousness. Understand this to be like water that is clear of sediment. Enjoy your day.